And thanks to Crime Malt, this is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, founder of Australian Brews News, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, colleague, and regular co-host, Pete Mitchum. Pete, welcome back. G'day, Matt. G'day, listeners. Mate, that was a little bit more what you're expecting, that you, you feel a little bit more comfortable and uh, you know, back on home territory with that intro? That's it, mate. We're back. We're back. Haven't had any uh, re- re- response to, to last one, but uh, hopefully... Uh... Uh, never mind. Anyway. Mate, what have you been up to? Yeah, and no, I keep them busy, preparing for uh, bringing good beer to good people um, en masse. To the good folk of the Echo, exactly. That's it, shaking lots of hands and introducing a lot of people to craft beer. So, uh, yeah, mate, be- any, any, any news or anything that's stood out for you this week? No, nothing I can think of. Nothing, nothing of particular interest to myself or the listeners. I wouldn't think. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's not too much. Uh, there is a, actually there, there is a little something that's uh, coming out, and uh, we, we'll read more of it from James Atkinson in the next uh, few days. And it, it's CUB are bringing out um, they're, they're relaunching Pure Blonde. Um, you know, low carb beer um, now, eighty percent carb. Lower, lower in carbs than regular beer. Oh, well, it, it, it's lower in carbs and, you know, they're chasing the paleo market because it's less gluten now and it's, you know, all, all, all of these things. And I've, I've got to say, James has been speaking to, to CB and finding out a little bit about it. So, you know, I've, I've got to be a little bit careful. I've just got what, you know, the, the, the public statements are. But, you know, I'll be really interested to see what comes of that because, you know, it's... You know, looking at what CUB have uh, done recently, in line have done recently, you know, that they, you know, most of the innovation or most of, you know, innovation is the wrong word because they're not doing anything new, but most of the stuff that they're doing has been around, you know, sort of flavour and and things like that, which is great for the category. Um, but, you know, it's pure blonde. It, it It's a beer that the low-carb market is something that I don't think I've ever railed about, you know, more consistently or loudly than than low-carb beers because on the one hand you've got the brewers saying oh you know the market's declining and you know people have this erroneous perception that beer is bad for you and yet on the other hand you've got this whole category of beer that is basically saying to people that have the wrong view of beer you know something you're right you know if, if you think beer makes you fat or if you think that beer isn't you know uh, part of a healthy lifestyle um, or you know, if you think beer is filled with you know preservatives and additives and stuff like that, here's a beer for you. Um, mm. And you know to to, to relaunch it and uh, you know sort of saying it's now lower in calories and it's got half the calories of wine, when that pretty much exclusively comes from the lower alcohol. Um, you know that they've and again I've got to find some of this stuff out. But you know if you lower the alcohol, you're automatically lowering the calories of anything. And if you had a four point two um, you know, percent wine, you would have, you know, probably more than half the um, calories involved in it. And, uh, you know, conversely, I, I, I would love to find out what they've done um, to, and, and we, we, we will, won't leave this uh, hanging. I will sort of, uh, you know, contact them and find out about it. But, you know, if you're lowering the um, gluten in, in a beer, how do you do that um, if you are using, you know, Malt, because malt, uh, unless you've got a special lower gluten malt, and and, and who knows, and, and and those sorts of things, which all of which starts getting away from this notion of purity that they, uh, you know, that they've built it around being, you know, nothing artificial, nothing, you know, they don't say natural, they say nothing artificial. And do you think maybe you know, the lower, the specially modified lower gluten malt is cane sugar? Well, it could be. 
Um, you know, and, and not that there's anything wrong with that specifically, no. but, you know, um, or are they adding enzymes to it? Because to get lower, you know, to, to get lower... Uh, less residual you know, sugars. Yeah, less carbs, carbs, carbs being yeah, brewers often, you know, um, add enzymes to it. And when you add enzymes to it, you can't call it natural. You can say nothing artificial because the enzymes aren't artificial. But you, you start getting into this thing. And, you know, at, at a time when people are distrustful of beer and see it as something that's negative to really the, yes. the only way they can relaunch this product is to you know say that it is for people who are you know want a healthy you know blah 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 all of which is basically saying well the, the rest of the beer market is unhealthy which is a nonsense and as I you know the, the whole um, low carb market as you know one national retailer pointed out to me when I was rolling against it was to, you know he, he said you know these these are beers for people who want to feel better about not changing their bad habits. Yes. Yeah. But I hadn't intended to go on that rant. I just suddenly realised that we had nothing, uh, you know, nothing in the upfront news uh, <laughs> section to, to go, and I, I knew that this was something to develop. But um, anyway, look, it's you know, CUB has been doing a lot of great stuff for beer, and it's not, you know, it, it's a business, and th this is one of the things that the big brewers are grappling with. You know, you know. When you sort of, you know, it's been fascinating to see the discussion online about, you know, lazy yak and, you know, people sort of saying, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's lazy, it's, you know, lazy brewing and stuff mm. like that. Oh, it's, it, it, it's not, you know, it's, it, if, if you don't like it, it's not a beer for you. You know, when, when you look at the, num the amount of engagement they get on their Facebook page for people loving it, you realise that there is a market for it. And, you know, let's face it, if you, you know, maybe, you know, sort of don't include the Stone and Woods and the bigger craft breweries, um, you know, in the country. Um, but, you know, maybe if you sort of, you know, ruled out the, the, the top 10 and included the next 100 um, and took, you know, the, the best-selling beer from that next 100 craft breweries, um, you would still add up to a beer that of a volume that CUB would delete from their catalogue because it's just not worth bothering about. Um, so, you know, it, it's different markets and, you know, CUB's focus on all of that is, you know, on, on the, the big-selling beers leaves a huge niche for the for the craft brewers that makes craft brewing possible but the flip side of that is are they then chasing a, a big niche that is going to sort of damage beer overall but anyway as i said prof you know i didn't actually intend to uh, to get in, in into that little one but that's that's the way we roll here at brews news that's it i i, I saw a rabbit and i chased it that's it <laughs> anyway but a couple of great interviews today we've got uh first up we are uh, talking to OJ, um, Owen Johnson from Hot Products Australia. The Bath Haas report is out. And uh, probably without too much further ado, we might uh, let OJ tell us all about the Bath Haas report, what it is and who Bath Haas is. The Bath Haas group is made up of uh, quite a number of, of separate uh, company entities. Um, the two main um, elements being uh, Joe Bath & Son in uh, Nuremberg in Germany and uh, Haas, John I. Haas in uh, Washington, D.C. in the, in the U.S. Um, you know, they're both uh, sort of big hop trading houses. They share um, some, some ownership. They're owned by two uh, private families. Um, HBA is a wholly owned subsidiary of, of those uh, of the Bath family. And uh, we, um, you know, we represent their interests down here in the, in the Southern Hemisphere and um, more specifically, you know, the uh, hop growing and and uh, breeding programs here in Australia. Um, the uh, just to sort of fill in the background of the Bath report, um, the Bath family has been uh, publishing um, this report since 1877, with uh, as they say only a few exceptions. 
Uh, and it really is quite an interesting snapshot of um, the world market, political situations, um, what the main drivers are in the European Union, currency and financial markets. It's really quite a fascinating read. It's quite succinct. Um, uh, yeah, and, it, uh, and then it, of course, spins off into... Um, into individual country reports and, and talks about uh, some trends, uh, which uh, you know we'll, we'll get to, no doubt. And, and, I, the thing that I find amazing is that I, th- I think you know almost well, more than a hundred years worth are available online. So if anyone does want to, you know, if, if anyone's got a couple of hours that they really don't have anything to do with, you can go back and read um, about hop, hop, you know, hop crops uh, going back uh, more than a hundred years. Yes, basically, if you've got some time on your hands. Uh, you can start in, I think it's 1909 or 10, and uh, go from there. <laughs> All the best. <laughs> <laughs> so no, no doubt you've uh, dived back and refreshed uh, your memory with all of those. That's something you'll never get back. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, I, uh, I, uh, you know, I'm a forward-looking individual. Uh, history's not my strong point. Uh, <laughs> so I have left the 1909 Bath report untouched so far. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, maybe, maybe we can sort of start talking a little bit about you know what happened. Um, with hops in Australia uh, over the last, uh, you know, the, the year looks um, really comparing the years uh, 13, 14 primarily in, in a global sense, but then we've also got the 14, 15 look uh, for, for Australia. Um, the, the the number of hop farmers um, remained unchanged was was the, the the first thing that I noticed. How many hop farmers are there in, in Australia and are they all part of the, the HPA group? They're... Um... There aren't many uh, private growers left uh, here in Australia, um, only uh, six or seven. Um, the varying sizes, we we have the uh, two biggest farms, one obviously Bushy Park in uh, Tasmania and the Ross Trevor Hop Gardens up in uh, Myrtleford in Victoria. Um, there is uh, one independent grower left here in uh, Tasmania and uh, there are a few in um, up there in the uh, high country of Victoria around uh, around our uh, Ross Trevor farm. So, yeah, things are um, things are quite different here in Australia compared to say the situation in Germany, where they have uh, you know almost twelve hundred individual farmers, um, and the number of farms growing hops um, does fluctuate. Um, but you know, if you lose fifty or gain forty. Here and there, you know, the significant change is not as much as here in Australia. If we lose an independent, excuse me, an independent grower here in Australia, uh, it's a it's a pretty significant thing. And so, the independent hop growers, who do they sell their uh, hops through? Um, the, the the Australian ones. So uh, they can either, uh, just like us, I guess, they have a choice to bring their hops directly to market, uh, which we've seen examples of previously. Um, we we as HPA also go and engage in uh, in contracts with the independent farmers to buy their, for instance, their entire crop. So they'll actually, you know, against our sort of sales and contracts out with brewers, we'll engage them to grow a portion that they can, and uh, we'll, we'll take that through to to market for uh, for ourselves against the contracts we've got with the brewers. One of the the big things was the increase in acreage um, in, in Australia, up from 2014. And I don't want this to sound like landline or anything like that, but uh, um, up from 174 hectares in 2014 to 240 in 
2015 in Tasmania and then from 234 to 248. So um, we're seeing a total, you know, 80 hectares may not sound that much in the, the, the scheme of things and in the landmass of Australia, but it's a significant percentage of um, increase of acreage uh, growth, isn't it? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we've been sort of communicating with the, with the brewing industry here, uh, you know, in the last sort of two years consistently that we are undertaking major investment and replanting programs, um, totaling almost 20% of our total acreage a year. Uh, this is this is an unprecedented amount of um, change in, uh, in a, both in our industry and in our individual company here in, in, in Australia. So to have turned over um, and developed 80 hectares out of our 408 in, uh, in 2014 has been a really significant challenge and, um, and uh, has you know, has impacted on our um, total yield in kilos uh, in 2014. We basically, uh, um, you know, dipped uh, our total production down to its lowest in the last few years. And uh, and we'll see the fruits of these efforts, you know, from 2015, 16, 17 onwards as uh, those paddocks mature and start to, to, to yield their uh, full mature uh, yields. Incidentally, we've actually you know, between 15 and 16 crop years, we're also adding another 80 or 90 hectares again. But this will be new land, not land that's not existing land that's been dug up and replanted with modern varieties. This is this is actual bolt-on new land. Um, so we're going to continue pushing our total acreage up significantly um, coming into the 2016 harvest. In terms of hitting the Bath Report figures there, these are... This table only demonstrates the uh, actual harvested um, hectares. So the new ones we're adding on this year, we probably won't see until 2017's uh, right. report, if you like. So there's a little delay, but but needless to say, the important thing is we're uh, we're still going head on at um, at uh, trying to lift our yields and become uh, become more productive and bring more of our proprietary hops to the market. Yeah, for all of that um, growth and, and all of the expansion that you were talking about, you know, look, looking scanning down the, the the list, Super Pride has had a slight increase in uh, hectares under cultivation. Um, Pride of Ringwood, slight increase, um, but poor old Topaz. Uh, it, it sounds like you're tearing them out at at a great rate. What's Topaz done wrong? <laughs> poor old Topaz. Yeah, um, it, uh, it's a little misleading in terms of uh, just just simply looking at a. The acreage change in Topaz. Uh, Topaz has been around with us since uh, its commercialisation back in 1984. So it used to be grown for um, high alpha. Um, it, it's high alpha properties for alpha contracts, uh, which we which we still hold um, with customers both here in Australia and around the world. And it just so happens that um, that recently has been what we've been growing to fill some of these uh, generic alpha contracts. Now, as they've run out, and our model is is turning more toward um, hops for the craft brewing industry and and hops with flavour and a point of difference out there in beers, the generic alpha contracts have become less and less significant as a part of our business. Um, unfortunately, it, it has been Topaz as the individual variety that's um, that's you know borne the brunt of that change. So poor old Topaz has has seen a, a decrease in its hectares, but uh, but only because of the directional change of our, our business. It's not because Topaz is on the way out. So what varieties are, are going in? We've seen, a, obviously, a big expansion of Galaxy, which is the you know, hero of the Australian you know, hop story at the moment, I guess. 
Yeah, we're pursuing, uh, obviously we're continuing to pursue Galaxy, um, but we are balancing it somewhat with um, increases in uh, Big Secret and Enigma in particular. Um, Hell is a real strong performer for us still, uh, but we we estimate, um, you know, going forward we will continue to pursue um, these these uh, discreetly different hop varieties. We won't uh, we won't be um, trending toward being a, a one trick pony, for instance. AJ, back in we talked about Galaxy, and back in 2005-2006, the, it, it was just a an experimental number kind of thing as far as a. Uh, a usable or you know market ready hop um, was concerned, and then all of a sudden it became the you know the golden child. Is there is Ella or uh, or Vic Secret or Enigma uh, the next big thing, or is there something else that we haven't even heard about yet? Well, uh, <laughs> we've got big hopes for Enigma. We think Enigma is um, a fascinating hop, and it's um, it's getting some really good feedback from from breweries that are out there trialling it. Um, we've lifted production. Um, you know, significantly given it's given that every hop starts with a small, you know, small uh, acreage. Um, so you know, we're hoping um, not that it's going to be heir to the galaxy throne, for instance, but that Ella, uh, that uh, Enigma does uh, mature into a really significant variety for us. You know, in the you know, let's be frank, in the hundreds of tons, not just uh, not just ten or twenty. And just for our listeners who may be unaware, what's the, the lead time, if you like, from um, either crossbreeding or developing um, a hop variety to the point where it now becomes commercially available? Sure. So it does uh, it does differ. Um, Galaxy, for instance, was a, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, was a 1997 cross, um, of a German Perlet with a with a high alpha Australian male, and uh, you know that took uh, you know that took the full ten or twelve years to become commercialised, and that that's an artefact of screening and uh, and and obviously having a um, having a market ready to accept it at that point. Uh, Enigma, as our most recent um, varietal release, is a, has been a little bit quicker, and uh, she got um, she got sort of fast tracked in a way. Because we saw some really interesting characters coming out of coming out of its performance and screening uh, very early on, so that was still um, seven or eight years. So it's not, when it gets fast tracked, it's still not quick. Yeah. Now we've we've released six um, six new varieties in the last six years, and that is that is uh, an unprecedented rate, and and we're quite fortunate to have you know, the most mature breeding program in Australia. Um, in fact, you could you could argue that it's the only only significant breeding program here in Australia. Um, we're lucky that we have a lot. We had a lot of um, unique hops uh, up our sleeve, so to speak. And uh, and as the market has embraced craft, we've been a, in a position to um, keep a pace with it. And now we've got a really nicely diversified um, portfolio of hops to bring to brewers that cover all spec all all corners of the hop flavour spectrum. With um, hops, I mean, a lot of people, well, people, I guess people in the craft beer scene are increasingly aware of them because they have become the, uh, you know, the, the darling of the craft beer movement. But, you know, it, it's, it's not like some fruit trees where you can just graft them and sort of roll out fairly quickly, can you? The, what, what's involved, what's technically involved in, you know, having a very successful uh, trial patch of, you know, the, the new hop and then, you know, getting it out under substantial acreage? 
well, that's uh, that's a quite a lengthy process, but I'll do my best to sum it up. The um, all right, mate. We we've got all day. <laughs> the uh, I guess the the crux of it is to have a good right at the start to have good genetic diversity in the parents that you're going to cross to make uh, make an offspring, make a, a cultivar that you're then going to screen for a variety of um, traits and performances before it gets into any kind of um, in beer assessment. So. From, from that standpoint, we're uh, very lucky. We've got, uh, again, off the top of my head, I think we've got something like 180 unique um, parent mm, hops, if you like, <laughs> to, to generate our crosses from. We, um, we have some, not as extensive as some periods in the past, but we have some extensive breeding gardens where we can plant these uh, new seedlings, these, these new cultivars. And at that point, we go through what we call sort of agronomic assessment do they grow um, do they grow well in our conditions whether they're at Bushy Park or uh, at Ross Trevor um, do they have the right plant structure are they very uh, vegetative heavy are they too many leaves not enough hop cones um, things like that are the, are the hops uh, you know the hop cone structure themselves is it is it tight or is it loose are they are they too small are they too big do they have the right um, analytical data behind them so all that sort of agronomic assessment goes on a long time before we even get them into a trial brew uh, for for uh, any kind of sensory subjective assessment that way. Um, we've been partnered, once, if, uh, if HOP does uh, come through um, various trials um, and, and we're talking maybe that we're four or five years in at this point and we're convinced that uh, this is worth screening in beer. Uh, we work with a few uh, partner breweries around Australia um, to get uh, to get these assessed in in quite neutral bases, very very uh, reliable base beer, so that we can so that we can hopefully accurately assess the differences that the these new hops uh, present in beer. That um, that uh, is reasonably accurate and quite you know we we do definitely listen to our results from this uh, this sort of program. But really, the cutting edge of it for us uh, is when we get a new hop, like uh, either Enigma or um, this year we've been uh, slinging a few boxes of HPA 035 out there uh, into into commercial breweries, into craft breweries, and saying, uh, you know, here you go, have a crack at this, and tell us what you think. And that's where we really see whether it stands up or not. Now, once they are out there. Um, you're it takes a while to scale them up, and uh, if, if there's a brewery such as Stone and Wood, which has made such a signature of its Galaxy hops, you know their growth is reliant on getting, uh, you know, a regular supplier, which is where the contract idea comes in, con forward contracts and guaranteeing your supply. Um, Eighty-five percent of the 2015 um, harvest was spoken for or contracted uh, in, in advance. What size brewers are, are taking those sorts of contracts? Is it everybody or is it really just uh, brewers above a certain size? Um, definitely uh, size doesn't really play a role. Um, probably more so how organised the brewer might be, how uh, settled their product strategy is. Um, some people's product strategy relies on uh, quite a contrast to the stone and wood model. Some people's product strategy relies on uh, agility and new beers, you know, so they, their idea of contracting hops is, is a bit nebulous for them. Others, um, such as a, a stone and wood, have a have a have a core ingredient that they they you know, in terms of business risk, they need to uh, make sure that they've got an adequate supply. So, size is not necessarily an issue. 
product strategy, yes. Um, and uh, is the brewer having the conversations with their hop supplier about what they need? And that's the real kicker. So anyone can come and uh, contract with us. Any 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 brewery can um, come and have a conversation, and uh, we can do our best to sort them out for their needs. Um, but regardless of whether it's us or them, you know, it's just important to. Uh, Keep hops in mind as we as we come into the next couple of years, where uh, where people are growing fast, and um, you know the market's really embracing craft beer. And, and what's involved if if I sign a contract to you? you know, is, is it a little bit like Book of the Month Club, where once a month a uh, delivery of hops turns up, or is it it's sitting there in a bank um, already for me, and uh, it just comes in as as ordered? Well, uh, typically here in Australia, we'll. Um, We'll sort out an annual need. We'll, you know, you tell me that you need 100 kilos of, of hop X. I say, yep, got it for you. Sign here, and then uh, we'll actually cold store that in our warehouses um, and have it ready for you whenever you need it to call up, uh, and we'll invoice at that point. Now, different different arrangements are possible. Um, some people like to store their own. Um, we obviously we like to uh, invoice for the full quantity. Other people don't want to see invoices like that, um, so we uh, we always thrash around uh, business to business and make sure that we've got the right fit, and then we uh, we both sign up. So you know, individual contracts can look quite different. Um, it's just uh, it's up to the customer and what fits their business and our business the best. Well, that's Australia. What's going on internationally um, for for hops? You know, what 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 are the big movers? Uh, you know, how are supply and demand, you know, matching up? Yeah, this is a, another complex uh, question. Um, you know, we're not uh, really reinventing the wheel here with um, new hop varieties. Um, I think the report, the Bath report, mentioned some 230 different hop varieties are currently grown around the world. I think what we see as a, a broad stroke of the brush is um, a bit of an 80-20 rule. 20% 20 of those hops are the main hops in the world. They're the ones that the leading beers are, are hanging off. Um, the other 80% the other of the hop varieties are, are there. They are used. They're great to have uh, that amount of choice and variety in, uh, in brewery ingredients, but, uh, but they're not really grown in, in big quantities. So, you know, we're... Um, we're putting a, perhaps a different paradigm over over an old scenario. Now we've got new varieties, you know, purportedly for flavour and aroma. Um, but to talk of um, supply and demand issues worldwide is quite complex because different varieties can have individual supply and demand pressures on them, uh, and, and it doesn't really apply to the whole market. A whole market commentary around hops worldwide is, is, is quite a hard thing, and it's not necessarily all that accurate. OJ, in the past, uh, the I guess the hop grower has kind of led the way uh, and then along came the craft movement, which I guess reinvigorated the, the hop growing side of things, particularly here in Australia. And I guess over the last couple of years, it's been a kind of a hand-in-hand -hand approach. Is that, still, uh, is that still the case? Like you obviously rely on uh, craft brewers intending to make hop-forward beers as part of their the general sort of portfolio, um, and therefore you know you've, you've, there's the market for that. Is it uh, a, an each way bet kind of thing? Is it is it a hand in hand process? Yeah, look, Prof. I think you, I think it probably still is uh, here in Australia at any rate. Um, you know, our breeding objectives back in the um, you know in the uh, 1960s to 1980s were all about us breeding for high alpha and trying to push the percentage of alpha acid in a given cultivar up higher and higher. 
that wasn't particularly in consultation with a brewer about the same things we're talking about now, about flavour and aroma. Yeah. Um, that was about economics. It's about bang for your buck. Um, the, the breeding objectives have clearly changed. Um, and now we, we do, I think, probably, I know it's a bit naive of me having been in the business for six minutes to say this, but I think we work really closely, potentially clo closer than ever with a, a broader range of breweries when we're developing uh, new cultivars and when we're undertaking screening. So I think we do... I think we do. Um, I think we do work with with the customer base as much as we can, given given the nature of the the task that we're undertaking in breeding. You, you're telling a story. Last week we spoke to um, the Glad, the guys at Gladfield Malt over in uh, New Zealand. Um, you know, who are small boutique maltster, um, and you know they were saying that they were responding to a need because you know as we had two big brewing concerns, who were looking at malts that met their purposes, you know, looking at efficiency and consistency and, you know, those levels of quality, but weren't necessarily, you know, meeting the needs of craft brewers. Um, we, we have seen, you know, craft brewers having to rely on the, these malts that weren't specific for them, or alternatively seeing, uh, you know, niche, um, you know, maltsters coming in to, to serve those. It sounds like, um, you know, with the, the hops being a, a different cattle efficient. I mean, you guys are having to sort of be all things to, to, you know, all brewers a little bit at the moment and, you know, very much responding to the growth of craft in doing that. Yeah, we, we've got a bit of a foot in each camp still. Um, we can't uh, we can't discount the role that uh, Super Pride and Pride uh, contribute still in the Australian market. You know, we are committed to growing um, base bittering needs for the domestic market uh, and that still comprises quite a portion of our business on the flip side we are um, we are absolutely in lockstep with with the niche requirements of um, craft we think um, you know you've got to keep in mind that Australia grows less than one percent of the world's total hop output and we've got uh, you know a dozen commercial varieties here so we think that in terms of diversity we are um, attempting to bring a real choice and a range of flavours uh, to brewers, much like the Gladfield sort of micro-malting, making sure that they're trying to cater for the malt flavour and performance requirements for craft, which are different to the macros. So we think we, we've, we've got a bit of a foot in each camp still. Does a hop such as Ella or you know, Vic Secret um, you know, command a price premium over something like Super Pride? In a way, it does. Basically, the way I picture it is um, these modern varieties, um, and this is, I think this is beyond HBA's um, proprietary flavour and aroma varieties, I think they, they do stand alone. They are not directly substitutable with another, another hop. Um, they, are, they are unique offerings in their own way. Um, this is not a black and white statement, um, obviously, things can be uh, substituted out. They, they, I think they do uh, command a, a slightly higher price, but this is all in a, you know, constrained by relativity with what else is available. So if I put the price of one of our girls up uh, astronomically, that will motivate people to change. So we are, we are talking about a, a commanding a premium, but it's quite small. And, uh, and you can't get greedy because people will swap it out for, uh, for something, even though you know, they're not like for like. And, and what does it do for you guys when somebody like, you know, Lion brings out, 
the the, the forex gold pale ale that um, you know they they boast uh, of using amarillo hops for example does that suddenly put a strain on uh, you know, amarillo hops which are a fairly commonly uh, used hop quite quite possibly um, there are there are examples where uh, Breweries have released a product. It's had, um, you know, outrageous success and has uh, catapulted that brand's volume. Um, and they've they've scrambled to um, buy a particular variety on the spot market, and uh, and that spike of demand has driven up price due to a, due to a, a compression in the availability. This is um, this is not a new concept. It's the same. Um, Supply and demand paradigm that um, that alpha varieties had before we had this level of diversity um, on the market. So, look, I would say that we can protect ourselves and our customers from from price spikes and shortages by uh, you know, as I said earlier, encouraging people to have those conversations with their hop suppliers and and put some projections forward. Um, therefore, you know, maybe we can avoid. This uncertainty of uh, of uh, dramatic spot purchases driving up the uh, price and and compressing the availability. OJ, I had a beer this week, and it was uh, it was, it was very nice. There's nothing groundbreaking in that. Uh, but let me finish. Uh, it was the new uh, the Sierra Nevada uh, beer that was made with the now what is it? Is it like a distilled hop aroma? Kind of thing that like so while the hops are still on the vine out in the field they. I don't know, they put steam through it or something and they extract a, like a distilled hop oil? Mm. Is... Yeah, I, I, I did hear this one. Uh, I think they did that in, in the 2014 Northern Harvest um, and they've, they've sort of put it out there as, a, as a, a green hop beer available all year round. Yeah. Is that something that you guys have, have looked at and thought we should give a crack at that? Well... Like the short answer of that is no, <laughs> but uh, the longer answer is um, steam distillation to capture essential oils from hops has been done for many many years. Um, they uh, their innovation here is to do it in in the field uh, through a little lavender still steam distilling. But uh, you know, to be frank, you can you can and have been able to for many years now buy um, the essential oils of of hops. Um, in commercial preparations for achieving exactly what their uh, <laughs> exactly where their innovation is. Um, yeah, and, and the the other so, part to that question is that when when you then pick those hops, uh, do they have a, a lesser yield than they would have if they had not been subjected to lavender steam distilling? Subjected to being boiled, yes. <laughs> 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 um, uh, look, I'm 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 not uh, I'm not certain about yields. Um, and whether or not you would increase, I would assume that through a steam distillation and capturing the, you know, the uh, the oil fraction out of a hop um, in isolation like that would be more efficient than throwing it into, a, you know, a 10 or 12 percent sugar solution in a brewery kettle uh, somewhere. Um, but I'm I'm not altogether sure. I haven't actually spoken to the guys at, at Sierra Nevada about it. Um, you know, those guys are, are to be commended. At, in their attitude, their level of technical expertise around hop is just incredible. Um, so every time they sneeze about a hop, I, uh, I listen to what they're talking about. <laughs> well, OJ, we're probably, I mean, we, we could probably talk about hops for hours, but uh, I don't know whether we can take our listeners along for the ride. So thank you very much for joining us 
Uh, anyone that wants more can go back and read those 107 years of uh, hop, hop reports. But uh, Owen Johnson from Hop Products Australia, thank you very much for joining us uh, once again on Radio Brews News. And uh, mate, before we go, can I just ask, uh, what is your favourite hop? My favourite hop is Ella. I think it's a beautiful, um, subtle, floral spice hop. It can be used with elegance or... Uh, or you can get all craft beer about it and just chuck fistfuls of it in and it's just a beautiful thing. And uh, is there a beer that really expresses it, that you can point to that really expresses Ella well? Oh, there's a few out there in the world, but um, here are probably most widely available um, and, and an interesting beer currently is um, back to back to Stone and Wood, not to harp on them. Um, the Stone beer is out and about. I would have gone to um, Prickly Moses Chainsaw. Oh, yeah, which, uh, has, which has been drinking fantastically lately. Yeah, and that's that's a great showcase for for all that is good about Ella. <laughs> Brilliant. Just one last thing: if people are interested in these bath uh, the bath report, they can go to bathharvestgroup.com. Oh, we'll link to it in the show notes as well, OJ. So uh, OJ Owen Johnson, Hot Products Australia, thank you very much for joining us, and uh, yeah, uh, hopefully you'll be a regular guest on uh, Radio Brews News. Happy to go and uh, enjoy yourself a beer. There we go, mate. Hops. I couldn't help thinking, you know, when we said, oh, we're going to, the Bath House report's just been released and we're going to get a bit of a sneak preview and we get to chat about it. I couldn't help thinking of Clarence Beaks. In the, <laughs> yes. And I thought, oh, do we get to meet OJ in an underground car park at night? And, you know, the, the Duke brothers slide a, you know, a suitcase full of money across and, you know, you and I, you're Randolph and I'm Mortimer and OJ's behind the, the pillar. Isn't that a great movie? Trading Places, of course, you're referring to. But uh, yes, so. there, there is a little bit frozen concentrated orange juice, except <laughs> we're talking about the hops report. So it was fascinating. But, you know, the, I don't know, maybe it's a little bit geeky. We, we, we've been getting great sort of, uh, you know, feedback and response and growing traffic and all of that to, to, to the thing. Um, maybe talking about, you know, hop reports is a little bit too geeky. Um, I don't know. So let, let us know what you think, listeners. Yeah, as, as always, you know, listen through to the end um, and you'll find out where you can get in contact with us if you don't know already. Um, but was that a little bit too geeky? Oh, look, I, I'm fascinated by it. I, I really think that, you know, with hops being such a big part of it, you know, the, the hop business. And I know that our industry uh, people will have uh, enjoyed it, people who are brewers and interested in the, the, the state of hops. But, you know, maybe the casual listener was a little bit too, uh, you know, propel ahead no i don't think so i think in terms of you know what's what's the next big hop and i think it just it just provides a, a, a that extra point of education um we can start putting names to to the ingredients that we're that we're drinking i think just gives us all a just a, a bit more just a, a better appreciation of the product hmm. speaking of a better appreciation of the product next up uh, we are speaking to David Golding, who's the you know half the ownership team, David and his wife Karen are the owners of the Red Hill Brewery down on Mornington Peninsula in uh, Victoria, yep. um, celebrating ten years of brewing at the moment. Um, you know, a couple of uh, really good beers. I've only managed to try one of them, the Bloody Plums, that we'll uh, talk about in this interview. Um, but uh, I kicked off the interview with David by asking him uh, what's the biggest change that he's noticed uh, to, to craft brewing in Australia over the ten years of uh, Red Hill Brewery. I think I think the industry has grown massively in terms of not only the, the amount of breweries, the amount of beers, but I think the main the main thing that comes to mind for us is that um, that just people's ability to try different beers and people's openness to try different beers. And ten, ten years ago, you you really couldn't put out much that was very extreme or very or even very challenging uh, because people would be 
a little bit sort of held back from trying something that was so um, so unique. So we to, to to the to take it to one one level, we 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 brew them. Um, our main main our main beer is a is a gold now, uh, but it's based on a beer called Kolsch, and Kolsch is is brewed in Cologne, and um, it's a it's a great entry level beer. But for us, ten years ago, we we looked at it and went, well, no one's going to walk up to a bar and attempt to pronounce the word Kolsch or even understand what it is. So we called it gold now, and that that's something which. Now we get people can people people amazed that we are selling a Kolsch and we've called a gold mail and they're like, well, if you if you called a Kolsch now, you'd sell more. <laughs> and, and and that is a funny evolution that we've seen, um, isn't it? it? It just shows that the the market isn't a isn't a static market, but it's very dynamic as you know people's perceptions change and evolve. Oh, definitely, it's all um, and it's all changing at such an alarming rate. So even five years ago, you know, things were still pretty much plodding along as they were. People were starting to do some more seasonal beers um, and pushing some boundaries with flavours and that sort of thing, um, say, five years ago, um, but, but nothing really extreme was coming out. And then in the last two or three years, you've just seen this explosion of people doing what, whatever they want with beer and people are just going, fantastic, give me some of that. I want to I wanna, I wanna try some pumpkin oak aged sour barrel aged beer <laughs> but not if you drink Budweiser apparently <laughs> no, that's right but it, I, I guess I mean that's how tastes are changing we might come back to, to some of the other beers that you've, you've you've brewed to keep up with the evolving taste but let's go back 10 years let's jump in the way back machine do, do you think that um, you, you guys had a real challenge opening the brewery in the first place. You, know, you couldn't even get council permission to open a brewery unless you were a primary producer, so you had to start growing hops before you could make beer. Um, do, do you think that just the simple fact of getting your doors open would be easier if you, if, if you did it now? Um, look, it's, it's, hindsight's a really good thing, and, and also just having, having a, a benchmark of a situation to be able to look at and go, if we, if we, I suppose what I'm trying to say is, if, if we bought this property again, and we bought it now, we we would look at a situation like what happened to the Red Hill Brewery and go, okay, well, we know we know what's involved to be able to do that, and and actually we've been used as a as a blueprint as um, in terms of setting up a brewery when you have a um, you know, when when your property is zoned as 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 something you want to change it to something else. So a lot of breweries have contacted us and gone, okay, so you've been through it. You know, what, what were the main things to, to look for in terms of being able to do it? But, um, I mean, the, our story was that we, we bought the property 18 years ago, and back then it was zoned um, rural residential. And it was a five-acre property in Red Hill, um, and it was perfect for what we wanted to do. So we, we bought the property, we put a yellow sign at the front, and... Within um, within six months, we had a, about 40 people objecting to us. There was a, a local local group that were were complaining about um, development in the area, and they became part of it. So we ended up having this massive fight with the council to get to the point where the council turned us down. Um, and then we sat back and went, well, we we believe what we wanted to do in terms of what we wanted to create with the Red Hill Brewery was 
within the boundaries of what was what should be accepted. So we we took that one step further to VCAT, and the VCAT turned out to be slightly bigger than Ben Hur in terms of what was involved there. It, um, it was scheduled for I think for about a four day a four day hearing initially, and um, on the first day in the first. 10 minutes of the of the of, of the VCAT hearing, we were being threatened to be taken to the Supreme Court by a QC that was um, employed by the council. So we ended up having this massive fight to be able to to be able to get us to the point where we eventually won. But it took it was a I think it was a four year period from when we put the yellow sign out the front to when they sent us a letter saying you can do it. And then we took about two years off after that because we were exhausted. <laughs> and we just kept looking at each other going, do we have the energy to continue to, to actually to do this? And um, I'm, you know, I'm very glad that we did. We, we eventually looked at each other one day with a beer in hand and went, well, if we don't do it, we'll never know whether, whether we could or whether, we, whether it would work or whether, whether it wouldn't. So, um, hey, so, hey, Dave, more importantly, yeah. any of those 40 original protesters, are they now regulars? Um, there's a couple of irregulars. There's been no complaints since we started. So when we when we were going through the process, it was pretty. You know, Red Hill's a pretty small country little village type thing, and you'd go down the shops and you'd be you'd be scared to look some people in the eye because you weren't quite sure whether they were objectors or not. Um, but um, you know, we've been going now for 10 years. We haven't had a complaint at all. You know, the, the obviously the, the fears that they had that there was going to be a Brewing monolith and and you know the, some of the most ridiculous complaints in the world were put up and put forward, such as you know who was who's going to who's going to monitor the effluent stack from the brewery um, were, were, was was one of the complaints. So but, uh, you know, but that was ten years ago. You, so, you got there, and that's the main thing. Exactly. But getting the doors open is only the start. Can you remember who was the first? Um, venue to take your beer outside of your own, uh, outside of the brewery. Who was the, What was your first sale? I believe it was the Royston. I think I think it was the Royston Tap House with the, the guys who were, you know, initially the ones really pushing that boundary of, of putting the, the new beers out there. So, and and that was fantastic. I mean, initially when we started, we had we actually had a lot of um, uh, restrictions in terms in terms of how much we could brew. So we would brew. I think we could brew three times every two weeks, or something was our was was our um, the restraint on what we could do. So we would we would brew all the beer, and then we when we opened our cellar door, we sort of expected um, all our, our if we go back to our, our business plan, it's 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 a bit of a joke. It's actually on the on the office wall that <laughs> that uh, I was going to brew beer and deliver it, and Karen was going to run the cafe, um, and I think within. Six months, we had an assistant brewer and something like about eight staff running the cafe because it just went gangbusters as soon as we opened. So, so over, over ten years, um, you, you've, you've brewed a huge number of beers. Is, is there any one beer that really stands out um, as the one that you know? So think, you know, gee, I, I'm getting the hang of this brewing game. <laughs> I'm still not even sure about that, but um, <laughs> it's um, look, we've had some. Some of our beers, and more so the seasonal beers, are something which which I think we've become known for, and just the enthusiasm of the the punters who who love our beer sort of really give, give us a lot of um, 
a lot of pleasure and a lot of pride in terms of what we do and and some of the beers that really stand out are imperial stout is is that is that beer that is sold right in the middle of winter right about now it's um just finishing up now in terms of being on tap at the brewery and it's it's one that people wait for and they 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 come in and and they do what we believe no one would ever do in terms of in terms of craft beer is is they would come in and they would buy five or ten cases of of, of a craft beer that was a seasonal beer which is you know more alcohol more exercise and 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 as such more expensive so um and then we find that those same people will actually travel with beer and you'll you'll see them in africa with a red hill imperial stout drinking it on the on the plains of, of the savannah and you go wow look at the it's just that that that, that that love of that product and um so some of the some some of the uh the seasonal beers that we do in Pearl Stout, Christmas Ale and Temptation are, are the sort of beers that are, are pretty much the hardest to brew and the hardest to get right. But um the the passion of people that, that love it is 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 just make, makes it all worth it. It must be wonderful seeing your beers travelling around the world, you know, uh, and, and being photographed and loved, um, you know, or, or, or taken because it was your own travels overseas that in, introduced you to a love of beer. Am I right in recalling it that way? Yeah, that's right. Um, well, Karen and I, well, Karen's the other part of our business. Um, we we lived in lived in England for uh, two and a half years, and in in that time we got we got. Um, we just fell in love with the entire beer scene over there. We had, you know, you, we we loved we loved camping, we loved mountain bike riding. So we would go to little villages in the middle, you know, southern England, and you'd be drinking these amazing beer on 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 tap um, from a brewery that was only 20 miles away. And we used to the the camera, which is a campaign for real ale, um, have a have a, a pub book where they show. You know the best pubs in England, and and on on, on each on each of the page descriptions of, of these little pubs, they would have a, a a little sign saying that you know within within two miles there is a camping ground. So we we'd we'd pick those ones out, go camping nearby, and be able be able to walk to these little pubs and have these amazing beer flavours. So um, that's that's a lot what inspired the concept of the Red Hill Brewery in terms of a a small local brewery that's producing, you know, great beer and, and distributing um, the beer locally so that everyone's getting it fresh. But the, I suppose the other thing we, we, we did a lot was travel through through Belgium and Germany and um, and those sort of places and, and we, we spent a lot of time in Belgium just trying these amazing beers and, and this was probably 25 years ago we were drinking them and Beers like Duval and, and Chimay and some of the some of the smaller local uh, Belgian breweries were blowing our minds in terms of in terms of flavour profile. This is before I ever had picked up a paddle to to make to make a beer. So it was something which we came away from that and moved back to Australia. And um, I went to my local bottle shop and there was. There was two brands and one German beer, and that was the that was the extent of what I could buy. Um, so I started I started home brewing to be able to drink what I wanted to drink. If you're able to sort of give us a list of three beers that 
have really inspired you um, and that they may be beers you've tried before you started brewing or even you know, beers that you've tried over the last uh, you know, three years that you know, say, well, you know, gee, isn't it exciting where beer is going or this really represents how far beer has come? Can you, is that the sort of question that we, we can put on notice or you know, give you without notice? Yeah, sure. I can, well, I can, I can, I'll, give, I'll give it a try. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm thinking at the moment. Um, so three beers... Uh, Duvel, years and years and years ago, when I when I first tried that, I just it blew my mind in terms of what a beer could be that is such a uh, a flavoursome, consistent beer that is um, that is really quite incredible in terms of in terms of a beer that you can give to someone who doesn't drink beer and they and they look at you and they get that quizzical look in their eye and they go, well, what what is that? They, they really it really define uh, defies the, the concept of the concept of beer as a, as a straightforward product um, it's it's something which inspired us to make our, our our version of it which is which we call temptation and it's a it's a beer that's eight and a half percent and it looks like a standard lager it's got some high carbonation really light body um, but it packs packs in at eight and a half percent and it just has a Magnificent um, aromatic nose that really um, defines what what that what that what that beer is and what what that beer is all about. But it also has that hidden agenda where it's Duvel in Belgium is is devil, and uh, it every 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 beer that's made in that style has that sort of naming um, naming naming style. So out is called Temptation. There's others that are called um, Beelzebub, um, Satan, those sort of things, and uh, it's it. We've the, the the locals down here love it. When 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 it goes on tap, they they flood the bar and they they drink pints of it. And by the end of the night, they're usually speaking in a in 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 a, in a language that doesn't exist. <laughs> so that's that's probably the, that's probably the first one that really came to mind. Um, in the uh, earlier this year, I went to the states and um, went to the uh, the craft brewers conference in in Portland, and then did a road trip from San Francisco down to San Diego. And probably one of the standout beers was, um, and and also standout breweries was uh, the Firestone Walker Brewery, um, just north of San Francisco. And um, oh, hang on, no, it's not. It's in between San Francisco and San Diego, and They've got a they've got a beer called Union Jack and it just that was amazing that really blew my mind in terms of a beer that is really really hoppy but also not hoppy in a full on American style way but something which sort of goes between both England and the U S and just has a subtlety that really um, really blew my mind and I, I just thought that was an absolutely magnificent beer. Um, and I suppose the third one, I'm thinking the Hargraves Hill Pale Ale is something which I keep going back to as a, you know, just an easy drinking beer. It's just really quite, it's, 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 it's straightforward, it's classy, it's consistent. Um, and, and for me, it's, it's a beer that just, um, just you, can, you can pick it up and drink it and it's not one of mine, so I don't, I don't have to make it again. <laughs> now, two of those beers you 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 sort of use that c word um the, the consistency you, you talk about it with Devel and then also hargraves it, it's 
It's one of those really challenging concepts in, in beer because when you speak to the, the, the larger breweries, they talk about consistency um, being their god. Um, and yet craft brewers, you know, it, it is ultimately an agricultural product and, and, and never more so than a you know, brewery such as yourselves where you grow your own hops. Um, and so there is going to be real, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily hold the word terroir when you're talking about, um, you know, beer, but, you know, there, there is going to be season to season consistency, uh, in, inconsistency, and there are going to be changes and it, it, it's a small system you can't blend. How hard is it to, to do what you do and cater to our innate desire for, you know, recognisability between batches, but still, you know, have those, uh, you know, ha have that inconsistency um, in, in the, the natural sense? I think it's two parts. I think that a little bit of um, seasonal variation is okay. I think that's that's fine, um, and I, I don't have a problem with with that. We have we have we have some challenges with the amount of tanks we have got here, and, and how much we can brew, and and when we when we are under the pump in the middle of summer, um, sometimes our beer might not get the you know the, the the full level of conditioning that we would we would aspire to but um at the same time we are a, a commercial um, commercial business and and we have to we have to balance that line between keeping customers happy and keeping the product as as best as we can so I suppose the other thing down here is we don't we don't filter we have a we have a rough bag filter for, for some of our beers, but, but most, most of our beer goes out completely unfiltered. So we're relying on time and temperature to, to clarify that beer and to, to, give it that, um, to give it that clarity as, as best we can. So, um, but we've had, we've had, I mean, with our, with our hops, we've had inconsistencies with, with different, different year batches. And I remember one year we, um, we're making a gold now, and we uh, put the last edition of the Tetanang hops in, which was the first time we'd used that season's Tetanang hops. And one of the brewers was about mm, I mean, 200 metres away, downwind of the uh, down, downwind of the brewery, and the other brewer had put the standard standard approach of, of Tetanang in, which I think was a kilo, a kilo and a half of of, of hop flowers in, and the other brewer came down and went, "Wow, it was just it just got hit in the face by the by the, by the fresh hops." So this this beer actually ended up smelling and tasting a lot like a Sauvignon Blanc instead of a Gold Now. And we looked at it and we went, "Well, it tastes good, but we can't we can't release it like that. It doesn't taste like Gold Now." So we ended up leaving it in tank for three or four weeks. And but after four weeks, the the, the flavour had Calmed down to the point where it was uh, it was it was similar enough to a golden ale that we could release it. But um, so that that year we had to actually halve the amount of hops we were using at, at that last edition to get that a similar characteristic with that with that beer. Dave, the uh, the secret stash has become something of a um, if if craft beer has has a mecca, it's it's very possibly Red Hills yearly secret stash. Um, I think it brings in one of the biggest advantages of being a regional brewery is that you're a destination. It's not as if, oh, we just happen to be going somewhere else. Oh, we'll pop into the brewery on the way. It's uh, yeah. People make that conscious decision to come down. And, and, and 
uh, it, it, the hop picking that I've been involved in and other, you know, Father's Day events and, and secret stashes and all that sort of thing, it, it really, I think, uh, highlights the, the advantage that you guys have being that regional brewery. Yeah, look, it's... Um, and it's, it's getting better because there's more breweries coming down here at the moment. So it's, um, it means that you've got that ability to come down and... And, and like you say, make make a day of it. Instead of instead of let's go for a beer, let's go for but let's go for the afternoon for the, to, to the Red Hill Brewery and um, and incorporate that because we I mean the, for those who haven't been to the Red Hill Brewery, we're about an hour south of Melbourne. We've got surf beaches on one side, we've got a bay beach on the other side, so we're on a peninsula. Um, we are about 300 metres above sea level, and we are in a beautiful area with another couple of hundred vineyards in this in you know within 50k so it's um it's, it, it is there's a lot to do down here there's mountain biking there's um, bushwalking there's surfing there's everything you can do here plus you've got the ability to be able to come here for lunch and and uh, if you've been mountain biking in the morning then you can you know Re- rehydrate the, rehydrate fix those sore muscles and and bleeding legs and uh by by having a few quiet pints of Pilsner. Exactly. You haven't thought of uh, bringing in a uh, Rattler to uh, for, for for the cyclists in in, in the German tradition? Uh, no, no. <laughs> That's okay. I was just just asking. It's just one because you you were talking about the uh, you know the the, the cyclists. And I love the, the the story about the enterprising uh, guest house owner who put some uh, you know lemon you know lemonade or lemon drink into. The, the, the beer, so the uh, cyclist got home rubber side down. Um, yeah, just, <laughs> just good, one of those things. It's a good idea, but um, well, from from, from... Oh, it's, oh, you, you, mate, it's all yours. Red Hill Rattler, it just rolls off the tongue. Red Hill does. Exactly. Well, I don't think there's any rules anymore with beer. So I think you know, with Karen has been heard to say many, many times in the past that she will never ever put fruit in beer, and. Um, in the last few months, we've been putting lots of fruit in beer. So I, I, don't think, I, don't think, I don't think there's any rules anymore with what you can do on a commercial level or on a, um, a homebrew level or, or, or whatever in terms of beer. There's just, you know, there's, you, you can do whatever you like. And that's a really nice segue into your 10-year anniversary beers, and uh, of which I was lucky enough to be sent a bottle of the Bloody Plums, which I loved. It was just wonderful um, and that, that unfortunately had fruit in it um, and I loved it all the same. Um, I, I, I haven't tried the uh, Rauchbock um, or the uh, Red Triple um, but you know, t- tell us a little bit about the, the idea behind the 10 uh, year anniversary beers and, and what we can look forward to next. When, as, as, we're, as we're approaching our 10th our anniversary we, we really were trying to look for something that was going to Great, and it sort of enable us to have a have a year celebration of of getting to that point. Um, and Karen came up with the concept of of having ten red beers brewed over the next year to um, to celebrate that, and to also you know just to create something which is a, a bit of a bit of a line in the sand and say, okay, we got we got this far, and this is this is this is our way of celebrating it. And and from a brewer's perspective, it's a great potential to be able to go, okay, well, I can do 10 beers. There, there are no rules apart from the fact that there needs to be a red something in it, whether it's a red colour, whether it's a red fruit, whether it's just got a connection to the fact that we live in Red Hill. 
Um, and so we did the we did the bloody plums. Um, we've got a local artist doing the labels, so it's a completely different look to the to the to the labels, and it's uh, it's quite visually um, beautiful, I think, in terms of in terms of what uh, what, what he's doing. Um, and the next one we did was the red smoke, which had 20% smoke mold in it. Um, the Beechwood smoke mold from Best, and that has, that has had an amazing response to it. People have absolutely loved it. It's um, it's, it's still quite subtle. Um, it's a beer that we brewed just before we did a quick trip to um, to the states, so it got a good long time in conditioning, a beautiful um, cold ferment, so it fermented at 11 degrees for three weeks and then had another three or four weeks conditioning before we released it and it just, it's just come out absolutely beautiful. So that, that, was, that was 7% alcohol as well. Um, the next one we did was the, I'll just have a mental blank, what is it? The first um, one was the Raspberry Saison, wasn't it? That which was which was the the bloody plums, bloody plums. Oh, the bloody plums. Sorry, yes. Yeah, the, and and the plums came from. There's a little um, plum tree at the back of the brewery on 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 the deck. So we, we ended up getting about 30, 40 kilos of plums off that and putting it straight into the fermenter at the end of ferment. And uh, it was a saison that just came up beautifully. Um, and then we did the red smoke. And I'm just trying to think of what the third one is. Sorry, I've had a mental blank. Um, the triple. The triple. Oh, that's right. The batch 1000. So that was that was our. It just happened to coincide with our 1000th brew. So you can obviously see that we don't brew that hard here. It's twice a week. Um, it, uh, and that's that was a eight and a half percent Belgium triple. Um, we used we used a different um, malt makeup to create the red colour, and uh, that's that's been. Very well recepted, and, and, and lots of people are loving that. So, and the one we have in tank at the moment is inspired by the trip to the US, and we have done a uh, a red IPA, and that's about to be packaged fairly soon and out in the next few weeks. And that's um, a really big 70 IBU um, IPA that's coming in around. Eight and a half, nine percent. I think at this stage, off, off the top of my head. Now, off the record, Dave, because nobody's listening. Um, mm. Have Have you actually worked out all ten ahead of time? No, no, no. I okay. do. I, I do. I do about three or four in a row. So I've got. We've got a. We've got a, a list of stuff that we came up with when one day we just sat down and we go, okay, so what, what can we do? But that, how many uh, red things can we think up? Yeah. How many red things can we think up? <laughs> so red, red cordial. Um, <laughs> so. Look, there's, it's it's a bit of a, a work in progress, and I think that's actually a nice way to do it. So as we as we move through, I'm I'm basically planning the next three at the moment, and um, and looking forward to seeing what we can come up with. But it's quite good fun. It's a bit it's a bit of a gamble. We don't have we don't have the facility to do a test batch or the time to do test batches with any of these. So we just we just you know hopefully use what we've learned over the last 10 years to be able to put together a, a recipe and, and create a beer that people will hopefully love. So, so far, it's all been successful, so yeah. Can I, can I suggest one? Because um, your, uh, the facility that you use to, to uh, dry your hops, 
Is yeah. that uh, come from one of the apple orchards close by? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, the uh, the Unibrew beer, uh, I think, Ephemera, which is the uh, like a, a Belgian uh, apple-flavoured style. If you get red apples, you could do, you could do, I reckon you could do a really nice in that, you know, that Belgian sort of homage. Belgian homage? <laughs> An homage to the Belgian style beers. <laughs> Tip your hat. Yeah. <laughs> So, I'm actually chatting to the, one of the local one of the local uh, apple juices has found someone who has um, got an apple with a where the inside of the apple is red. So I'm actually looking at that as a as a concept of using something which could could work quite well with that. So yeah, we might even get our listeners to uh, to phone in some suggestions uh, for um, for red uh, themed beers for you, just just yeah. in case. Sounds great. Sounds great because uh, you know we uh, we've only got nine so far. So <laughs> there we go. There you go, listeners. Uh, that might be your chance, and uh, we'll we'll be giving you the uh, contact details, including a phone number, a little bit later in the interview. But meantime, Dave Golding, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News. Congratulations on ten years. Although it actually sounds like it's uh, closer to fourteen from the the, the time you started. Uh, planning it given the the, the the ringer you went through but uh thank you for all of the uh you know, pleasure you've given us over the 10 years and uh, hopefully there'll be uh, many many more thanks man thanks boss in the garden what a garden brews news is made possible by brew pack australia's number one craft contract brewer with over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and kegged beer, no matter how crafty. Serious about handmade beers, and with an open-door policy, Brewpack's brewers love having passionate, hands-on partners in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing? Think Brewpack. And uh, yes, we thank Brewpack for not only making a whole lot of great craft beers possible, but also for making this podcast possible. And uh, of course, that was David Golding. I'd love to think that uh, some of our listeners might have might might have a, a great concept for a, a, a red themed beer that they could uh, send, and we could we could pass on to Dave. You know, there could be the uh, the Radio Brews News inspired tenth uh, anniversary Red Hill beer. What one one of the uh, bloggers uh, going around on uh, beer as your friend did a Redskin beer, so that might be something. And yeah. Apparently, there have been a couple of uh, you know, people playing around with that concept, which yep. was was an interesting idea. Yeah. Um, so yeah, listeners, uh, yeah, please do let us know. But Dave, you know, Prof, I, I don't know. Uh, we, we we just it's not part of this program, but we've just recorded an interview with uh, Mazen Hajar from Hawker's Beer, and he, he he was very apologetic, as you'll hear next week, listeners, worrying that he might have upset people, and, uh, you know, following that theme, or, you know, preempting that theme, when we write about Beer Prof, we have to be really, you know, try and sort of put all of our own views and things aside, to, to some extent, to mm. fairly judge the beer, and, and, and that is a, a very hard thing to do, but when it comes to us as you know, people who fell in love with beer for a reason and, you know, sort of were attracted to the whole craft beer idea for a reason. You know, some of those reasons were people who were passionate, people that, you know, were living something and living a dream and trying to change something. And, you know, there there are a whole lot of ways you can crack the nut that is brewing. But I look at people like David and Karen Golding who, you know, fell in love with beer and what they went through, you know, they are, you know, chateau producers, you know, they grow their own hops and, you know, it is an expression of them and 
that they they aren't that they're going for almost a subsistence style brewery where they don't want to sort of you know furiously chase volumes and grow and things like that they want to make the beers that they want to make they want to you know make a living from it grow as they need to as opposed to chasing growth but they make a product that they love that they're proud of it's variable you know it, it's all of those things it, it, it's rustic it's all the things that come up from that style of brewery and um you know there, there is definitely a place for people who want to build a um you know big brewery or you know contract brew and build a brand and sort of get their brand out there but you know i'm, I'm always going to have a soft spot for uh you know people like david and karen and uh, you know really you know congratulate them for all that they've achieved yeah was it was that can we count that as a soapbox or was it just you know oh no no not really oh a little bit yeah look at look like last week in the, in the i talked about regional flavors and how i was on stage with um you know a whole bunch of chefs and paul west who you know is the host of river cottage australia which um you know ttv you know you look at most reality tv and you know how you know god right down from let's say let's call it the coronas of the reality tv world the um uh you know the every far, farmer wants a husband bride um bachelor yep. thing you know that, that you know are just basically scripted then you've got the things that are master chef and um yeah river cottage australia is one of those things that tries to you know have and, and i think it does have that sort of added level of um you know truth to it and yeah you know, paul west was was on stage this is all a long way of saying you know halfway through it we were presenting you doing cooking demonstration um and he just went into this soliloquy about you know farmers and how important they are and you know how you know we, we need to nurture them and we all rely on them and it was it was beautiful so yeah it, it, that wasn't the inspiration for that but it, it did sort of um, think that you know we, we, we do need to sort of step back and look at the, the the people that got us into beer and you know I, I don't know too many people who were inspired by you know um, you know, in, in, in inspired to take up brewing and change their lives by Corona, um, or you know, it, it, even God forbid, two years pale ale. Um, but you know, people are inspired by the the David and Karen Goldings of the world. Yeah, very much. Yeah. Anyway, that, that was I, I went off and that was so boxy. Had, 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 had a just a, when I thought you had stepped back off. <laughs> Damn, I still, I still have one foot on it. Doesn't count. Anyway, we, we've had two great interviews, Prof. We, we, we might, uh, you know, uh, sail on out of here. But before we do, cue the Marbox Lockie. Give me a ticket for an aeroplane. Ain't got time to take a fast train. Lonely days are gone. I'm a going home. My baby sister wrote me a letter. And uh, yes, Prof, we have a caller. We, sorry, we, we had a caller during the week. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, because I was waiting for somebody there to come in live. But yeah, it's, no, no, you, you no, ring no. in, you leave a message on our machine, and we'll play it. Hey, it's Frozen Summers of FrozenBoozReviews.com, and I just wanted to call and leave a message and say that Radio Brews News is one of my favourite Australian beer podcasts. Keep up the good work. Lovely little message there from uh, Dan Summers, uh, better known as Frozen Summers. Prof, I think it would be not uncharitable to describe uh, Frozen Summers as a beer geek, beer nerd. Yeah, a bit of that. A passionate, a passionate advocate for beer. Absolutely. So thank you for uh, for phoning in, and it just shows you that you can sound catch your your own voice on uh, Australian Brews News. Now you don't have to be as sucky as your uh, um, in 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 your message as Dan was, or as Frozen was. We certainly appreciate it, and uh, hopefully it's a genuine. Um, 
you know, genuinely uh, uh, expressed. But it, it, if, if you disagree with my little uh, soliloquy before, please you know, give us your counterpoint of view. If, if uh, you're hot under the collar, jump online. And that number is 0730401508. It will be in the show notes, but otherwise 0730401508. Um, you can get us on Twitter, um, Osbrews Use. You can get me as Good Beer Matt uh, on most of the social media things. You get Pete as Beer Blokes. Um, or but Pete yeah. Mitchum. Yep. Or Pete Mitchum. Um, we did have another comment. Uh, let's see. We got a comment expressed by Simon. Um, it, it, well, it actually wasn't a comment. It was, uh, I've tried to play Radio Brews News a few times on my Android phone through Player FM podcast app. Unfortunately, it will not work. Each time saying something about not playing private feeds. How can I feed this? How fix this? And uh, sure enough, he was right. Uh, I'd not heard of Player FM, but uh, I got in touch with the good people at Player FM. And now Simon uh, responded back and said, thanks. I have the last few episodes queued. I'll look forward to listening. So Simon, if you are listening, maybe give us a call and let us know what, you know, hopefully it was worth the trouble of uh, getting it on. But uh, if, if we're not on your favorite uh, pod aggregator and you've gone looking for us, maybe let us know and we can solve that as well. Prof, there were no uh, comments on uh, iTunes this week. No one left us any uh, feedback. Listeners, please. Oh, uh, mailbox is empty. Mailbox is empty, so please, uh, you know, guys, make the work, make the the walk down to the down to the front gate worthwhile for us. There are hundreds of you out there, so uh, yeah, just uh, jump online and uh, maybe maybe give us, you know, hopefully a five star rating. But you know, we we take what comes and uh, just help people find uh, the, the podcast and let them know what they can expect uh, if they take the effort to subscribe. But it, that, that's our mailbag for this week. Next week, as we've mentioned, you're going to hear from Muslim Hajar. Um, and a mystery guest, somebody uh, who is yet to reply. Um, but failing that, let's strike up the band and uh, see you next week, Prof. Yep, see you next week, Matt. And we are out.